Thank you, Dr. Zeller. <laughs> I did take classes with other professors, um, <laughs> and I loved them all as well. Um, I want to start by expressing just incredible gratitude uh, to be invited to speak here today to uh, Dean Adelson, to President Ellenson, to all of the staff and faculty here at the New York School and um, of the HUC campus. It's an incredible privilege to be asked to speak. I'm humbled. Um, and especially in this space, which I shared with my grandfather, and um, to be here with my family is a real gift. And um, I was thinking about him when you were giving your introduction that I asked him once, um, you know, Grandpa, what do you do during the silent part of the Amidah? What happens there for you? And he looked at me and he said, well, I just wait and see what comes. So um, he, he saw prayer as a lifelong practice, and it didn't mean it was always perfect or rehearsed, um, but that it came naturally. So it's a beautiful thing to be honoring his memory by helping to create a space for prayer for this community. Um, it was actually seven years ago yesterday that I came to this campus for my interview to the rabbinical school. So it's a remarkable thing to be standing here two years into my rabbinate. I have vague memories of the interview process itself, the nerves before stepping into a conference room on the fourth floor, the cubicle I sat in somewhere in the library while I took my Hebrew placement exam. But my clearest memories of that day are spending time with my grandfather. After my interview, he took me out for lunch at Dojo across the street, which I see is no longer there. <laughs> I had some kind of vegetarian teriyaki plate, and he had chicken fingers and french fries. <laughs> and after lunch, we came back into the building where he would teach, as he had done for nearly 50 years, the introductory course in modern Jewish thought. And I, as I had never done, would watch. My grandfather at that point was 88 years old, which meant he didn't really enjoy the chairs in the classrooms on the fifth floor. And so he had explained to me at lunch, a lovely student of his would come to his office and roll his office chair down the hallway to the classroom so it would be more comfortable for him to sit. So I'm sitting in my grandfather's office, and if those of you who were ever in there remember, on that very lime green couch, and he's down the hall getting ready, and in walks a third-year HUC student for the chair. Oh, I said from the couch, you must be the chair guy. <laughs> His face clouds over with a mix of awe and confusion. Yeah, and you must be the granddaughter. <laughs> for most of my life, I knew Rabbi Dr. Dr. Eugene Borowitz simply as Grandpa Jean. We had far more discussion of how my homework was coming along or if I'd be willing to split a plate of waffle fries at the diner than of theology or religious existentialism or commandedness. I knew my grandfather and I shared a sense of humor, a love of mint chocolate chip ice cream at any time of the day, and blue eyes. I did not know that we would one day share a profession. So when I arrived at the College Institute, I began to understand how others saw him, 
with a mix of fear and reverence. I quickly came face to face with the reality that there was no way my becoming a rabbi would not be shaped by my relationship with my grandfather. During our orientation week in Jerusalem, a classmate, I don't know if you remember this, asked then-President Ellenson how he had decided to become president rather than remain an academic. Well, he said, with characteristic tears in his eyes, <laughs> two people were essential in helping me make that decision. One was my wife, and the other was Emily's grandfather. <laughs> There would be no slipping anonymously through rabbinical school as Emily Langowitz without the accompanying granddaughter of Eugene Borowitz. There was no way my becoming a rabbi would not be shaped by my relationship to my grandfather. And there's no way I wouldn't want it to. Because beyond any response from other students or faculty or the administration, my relationship with my grandfather is foundational not only to who I am as a rabbi, but who I am as a human being. And that the same might be said of generations of rabbis who experienced him and his teaching speaks not just to his towering intellect, but to the way that intellect guided his behavior, his actions, his very being. My grandfather did not just think theology. He lived it. In Renewing the Covenant, a theology for the postmodern Jew, my grandfather wrote, summoned by God to personal responsibility, my piety expresses itself as a personal activism that finds its motive and standard in my being privileged to serve God as a covenantal partner. Who this God of all humankind might be must yet be explored. But one thing may already be said. I am one of those who no longer has such confidence in the human self as to say God and merely mean humanity extended. In his postmodern stance, my grandfather was already offering a radical new understanding of theology and philosophy, different from that which grounded our movement's founders. Isaac Mayer Wise and Stephen S. Wise, along with the others who built and sustained our institutions and our movement, were products of the optimism of modernity. They built a Judaism at a time when faith in the ability of human ethical striving was at its highest. The Reformed Judaism of our founders was bound to the clarion call of the prophets, who demanded that we seek justice in our society who believed that human beings could create a world which reflected the highest ethical truths, if only they would put their minds and their actions to it. My grandfather, too, believed deeply in the ideals of the prophets and of this movement's founders. He refused to bow to the idea that human beings could not strive for ethical, intellectual, and spiritual excellence. His dedication to human dignity and autonomy was evident in the way he treated every person he met, from students to colleagues, from the waiter at his favorite restaurant to his fellow academicians. He had high standards for the conduct of other human beings, and certainly 
for himself. And yet, he could no longer believe in the ultimate power of human reason as the sole grounding for our moral and ethical behavior. And so he offered, eloquently, powerfully, and through years of study, thought, and publication, a new vision for what Reformed Judaism, and indeed all Judaism, might be given the circumstances of our time. This was no full departure from the goals and values of our founders. It was a responsiveness to the world in which he lived. That new yet old symbol for such a shift would be covenant. Jews must be tied to a living relationship with a living God who my grandfather experienced on a personal and at times ineffable level. It is in that relationship that we as individual Jews find ourselves bound to our God and to our people. In that space of covenant, we can exchange love and from that love find a sense of duty and obligation. Personal autonomy, my grandfather wrote, has validity only when exercised in intimate involvement with God as part of one's community relationship to God. If we are to take our Judaism seriously, my grandfather believed, we must take our location within a covenanted people. We must take our history and the promise of our future. We must take our relationship with God seriously. For 50 years, my grandfather, he of the sharp sermon critiques and the mighty green pen, pushed the students of this institution to take themselves and their Judaism seriously. He believed not in a specific product, but in the process. The process of, as he wrote, the covenant faithfulness shown in determining our Jewish duty. From my experiences here at HUCJIR, I know that that same desire to push students to better understand, to seek, to grapple, to wrestle, to locate themselves in relationship to God and one another is alive and well within these walls. Yet in the wake of his loss, monumental on a personal level to be sure, I find myself asking, not just as a granddaughter, but as a fellow rabbi and a seeker in covenant, where will that process take us next? How can Reform Judaism continue to be responsive to its founders, to its foundations, while also searching for the new ideas, philosophies, theologies, and voices that will become foundational in our 21st century and beyond? My grandfather wrote, what I believe might be obscure wavering and difficult to put into words. But to deny it would be false to who I truly am, for despite its hiddenness, it is real, real enough that I try to base my life on it. I offer that same caveat now, and humbly my own nascent answer to such questions. I believe, like our founders, that we are obligated to prophetic ethics, 
to the powerful and historical connection that Judaism, and especially Reform Judaism, has had with the teachings of ethical monotheism. And I believe, like my grandfather, that we are obligated to covenant, to the voice which commands out of a lasting and loving relationship with us as individuals and with us as a people. Two strong foundations for what Reform Judaism has and can and should be. But I would add a third. I believe, inspired by the work of feminist theologians like Judith Plaskow and the education I received from professors and mentors at this college institute, that we are also obligated to our silences. In this time of greater awareness of the nuances of identity and the ways that our experiences shape our convictions and our faith, I believe we must take as seriously as the voices of our prophets, our founders, and our great theologian and teacher, the voices that have for far too long been absent. We must be commanded in the way we shape our Jewish communities, our world, and our own individual conduct by absence. We must be commanded by the voices of queer folks and women, Jews of color and Jews of different bodily and mental abilities, Jews with family members or partners of other faiths, voices that have for far too long been relegated to the margins of our tradition. We must somehow learn to hold and articulate the tension between loving our founders and acknowledging that every portrait on the fifth floor, every bust in the library, nearly every great published thinker or leader from our past is a straight white man. And out of that tension, out of that absence, we can build. I believe we can and we must take the radical hospitality that our movement espouses on a communal level and bring it to life in our systems of thought. So much of the work is already being done, but there is so much more to do. It requires that each one of us wrestle not just with what the covenant has been, but what it could have been had more voices been at the table what it may yet become if it is steeped in the narratives of all of what Jews are. In a portion of the poem, Atlas of the Difficult World, one of my sacred texts, poet Adrian Rich writes of the anguish she feels in watching her country entrenched in military conflict. She grapples in this piece with how to continue loving her country and its values, and yet to continue to acknowledge its wounds, the way it wounds her and others. She writes, a patriot is not a weapon. A patriot is one who wrestles for the soul of her own country as she wrestles for her own being. I do not call us to this task to weaponize us against our Judaism. I call us to it in love, love for a tradition that has borne me through some of the greatest moments and most difficult challenges of my life. I want, 
as I believe my grandfather did, for us to wrestle for the soul of our Judaism as we wrestle for our own beings. Such a Judaism may, as my grandfathers did from the founders, begin to look a little different, maybe even radically so. But that is, after all, the legacy of reform. And my grandfather lived that legacy, modeling in his five decades here, through his own transformation and development, the possibility of reform even in one's personal system of belief. I once asked my grandfather what he thought would be too much change in Judaism, if there was anything that was really beyond the pale, even for us reformers. He looked at me solemnly and said, well, until they start putting an iPad in the ark, I think we're okay. <laughs> he believed in change change coupled with deep and rigorous intellectual and spiritual inquiry. I know that we, as educators, cantors, and rabbis, as Jews, as a movement and a college institute, have the capacity to engage in such sacred work. And I'm going to take a sip of water. Rich closes her poem with three haunting questions. In answer to being, as she says, bent on fathoming what it is to love my country. From that fathoming, from that love, she asks, where are we moored? What are the bindings? What behooves us? Where are we moored? We are tethered to the incredible ethical legacy of our founding fathers. We, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, and the entire reform movement are grounded in the quest of our ancestors to continue working for a world of justice, a world redeemed. What are our bindings? We are bound in covenant, in loving, sacred, relational partnership to a divine source of life that knows us and imbues us with the dignity of independent action and thought. We are bound to one another and to our fellow Jews around the world, past, present, and future. And because of those bindings, we have the chance, as we celebrate over 140 years of educating reform leaders in America, to engage in the deep, reflective process of building a Judaism which acknowledges and attempts to heal its silences. We have the opportunity, indeed I would say the obligation, to create rich theological language, rituals, liturgy, movements, and textual interpretations which reflect the full lived experiences of our covenanted community. And so I urge each of us on this day of memory and celebration to ask, what behooves us? Thank you.